Hey guys, and welcome to the Yes Means Yes podcast. My name is Faith Nonship, and I am the ARP Outreach and Counseling Coordinator here at Rape Counselors of East Alabama. On this week's episode of our podcast, we have Debbie Adams here to talk about her book, Winning Over Shame. I'm going to go ahead and let Debbie introduce herself and tell us a little bit about her book and how she came to be, you know, in this line of work and where she is today. Thank you very much, Faith. Um, my experience is primarily lived experience. I started um, experiencing shame and abuse from a very young age, probably three or four. And so that kind of snowballed upon itself. When I was nine, my father abducted my sister and I, and we were in a really horrible place for about seven months. And there was a lot of abuse there. And the book sort of follows the consequences of having been through abuse, you know, into your teens and into your twenties and met my ex-husband, which was based on the understanding of I, that I had of love, which was quite twisted, unfortunately. And after about 12 years that ended and I kind of stumbled around for a while and eventually got into a very good therapist with a group, a counseling group that we were in for about three years. I had both of those. And between having the counseling and having actual real people that go through similar things as I did, I was really able to not just learn to come to terms with the things that happened to me, but really heal from them and move past them. So I have very few triggers or things that blindside me at this point in my life. And the full title of the book is Winning Over Shame, Overcoming Sexual, Emotional, and Psychological Abuse. That gives you kind of a background of where this abuse is coming from. Awesome. And, you know, is there anything else that would help, you know, form a more complete narrative of what the book is going to be going over or focusing on, just like an overview? Sure. The sexual abuse started fairly young. There was a lot of grooming from a very young age. I would say when I was about eight, it became a lot more intense and I started to become very odd. And I stopped having friends and became very indrawn because I had these secrets. And that's the thing about abuse is they give you the secrets that you have to keep. And it's insidious because often they don't even tell you this is a secret. You just somehow know as a young child, this is something that nobody else would understand. And I loved my daddy. I wanted him to love me. So I wanted to do the things that he wanted me to do. And it was just because my mother was awkward and strange. She really didn't have... A lot of the skills she needed to be a parent, and especially after my parents split and she was a single mother. And we're talking back in the early 70s. So there weren't that many of them around yet. So there was my father's overt abuse and then there was my mother's more neglectful type of abuse that was going on as well. And I did, over the course of this, also go to school online and got a degree in psychology. So I have a four-year degree in psychology which helped me to place my problems into a broader perspective. Definitely. And would you describe your book as memoir, as a self-help book? How would you kind of classify that if someone were interested in reading it? Sure. It's kind of a mix between the two. It's very much a memoir through probably three quarters of the book. And then I got into this counseling and with this group and the last part of the book is all the things that I did that allowed me to become a healthy, happy person. 
because I had never experienced happy before. Actually, the last scene in the book is my first perfect happy day, which is just a wonderful way to end a book that's all about the horrible things life can do to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, do you mind telling us a little bit about, you know, what made you want to tell your story? What made you want to write this book and these tips? Um, I am a very prolific writer in my journal. I So I have all these journals of information. And one of the counselors had asked me to speak at a partial program, which is, this is the same as being hospitalized, but you go home at night. So you're there for six or seven hours going through classes and such. And I had been there before. And so he asked me to come in to speak. And I was going through my journal saying, what can I talk about? What can I talk about? And a couple of things just kept popping right back out at me. And so I said, you know, I have this. And people responded really well to it. I presented it probably three, maybe four times over the course of half a year. And wow, this is resonating with people. And then it was almost 10 years before I had cleared the slate, so to speak. And I had gotten to a point where they weren't triggering for me anymore because you can't do a good job of writing it if you're all in the poor little me, gloom and doom, and nothing is ever going to be fixed me. Nobody wants to read that. But the, oh, there was this doom and gloom, and then there was this rainbow at the end. Makes it more worthwhile to read. I really think that this can help people who've been through abuse and people that know somebody who's been through abuse, but also professionals. Because it's really hard to get, I wouldn't say dispassionate, but an unbiased view of the abuse that, go, that the people they work with go through. I think there's a very large percentage of the population that would benefit from reading the book. Definitely. I mean, during COVID, I was working with RCA, Rape Crisis Center, and I found myself reading a lot of memoirs of individuals who had um, experienced some sort of sexual violence. And I feel like that gave me so much insight into not only trauma, but how it affects um, survivors and what even that they found helped them, what other people said and did around them that would be beneficial. So I felt like it really, really helped. Um, going kind of off of that, you know, with what happened to you, how has that experience impacted you to this day? What are still things maybe that are still triggers or you still struggle with or, you know, your worldview change has changed right? Because of what you've gone through. So what are those still kind of lingering factors? Well, I'm not in a relationship. I haven't been in a relationship since I left my ex, which was about 20 years ago now. And I just do not feel like I yet am sure enough in myself to not fall into the old patterns and pick people that would hurt me. And honestly, my life is so full that I don't think about it very often. But there is definitely that limitation, making friends is complicated, although I'm 55 and most people at 55 aren't making a whole lot of new friendships, honestly. You know, you say I stick with the people that you have, that I have met some wonderful people, both through these programs I was in and with speaking with people about the book. And I really find it resonates with a lot of people. So if I can't have a relationship with an intimate partner, I have so much other things that, yeah, it's a little bit of a loss and it's kind of sad when I think about it. Other than that, like I said, I've healed so much of it. I really can't think of something specific that is still lingering for me. 
I know that I'm an aberration in that, and I feel very, very blessed that I'm a whole person and that I can experience happiness. And yeah, so the yeah. little broken pieces, you know, you tuck them in bed at night and tell them everything will be okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it sounds like you have been able through, you know, all your hard work and therapy and, you know, even self-education have been able to kind of assimilate this into a part of you, a piece of you, um, bring it into your everyday life, which is the ultimate, you know, healing goal that we do have for survivors of abuse and such. So I'm glad to hear you were able to do that. And that the impact has, while it probably has changed your entire, you know, life course. And you probably thought this is, you know, I didn't know I was going to be writing a book like this and doing all of these things with these people. It sounds like um, you've still come out the other side. And like you said, been able to be happy and see the light at the end. Absolutely. And in the end, you have to take care of yourself because you're the one that's going to be there forever. You know, yeah. you want to have relationships, you want to have love, but if you don't like the person you are, mm-hmm. it's a long life. Mm-hmm. So I know that you just kind of mentioned your ex-husband. Um, do you mind talking some about, you know, your relationship with him? What barriers did you see when you were um, experiencing the abuse on his behalf to either receiving help or having people not believe you? Um, that sort of thing. In regard to my ex-husband? Yes. Um, I met my husband in a psych hospital. It was the summer when I first broke down and was in hospitals. And he wanted to be around me. And that was pretty much the entire criteria I had for mm-hmm. another human being. If they wanted mm-hmm. me, I didn't stop to think that I might have needs or desires or wants in the relationship. And it was only the second relationship I've had because when you have that kind of abuse, especially with sexual abuse, you don't want to get close to somebody because it's so triggering. But for me, it was just becoming enmeshed with him, reinstated all that had happened to childhood. I really felt like my relationship with him sort of mirrored the progression of my childhood. And we started pretty normal. We were both home all the time for the first year, which was wonderful. You know, I had somebody who didn't get tired of me and wanted to be with me every day. And that was in itself rather healing. However, unfortunately, we did get into a lot of twisted sexual things. We were doing threesomes and we were doing photograph shoots. And then we were doing group swaps, you know, pair swaps. And then we were in a swinging group for two or three years at the end of the relationship. And there came a time when I said to him, I don't think I want to do this anymore. What would you say if I don't do it? He said, well, I'd probably just do it anyway. And at that point, what I thought was my free choice no longer was because leaving him was not an option for me at that point in my life. And that's when I started to think a little bit, gee, maybe there's something wrong here. Maybe it's not me. Because as abuse survivors, everything is our fault. We just assume that. So that was ultimately got our relationship to the end. And then he met someone online who he told me was his soulmate and he couldn't live without her, but he didn't want a divorce. He just wanted to be able to have it all. And that was too painful in the end. And so he actually had me arrested. I we got into a fight and I bit him because he was holding me down and I was frightened. And he called the police and they tried to get me to 
press charges against him, which I wouldn't, till he pressed charges against me. And that's what ultimately got me out of that relationship. I had to thank the judge very much because he said, I'll let you go on your own, but you can't have contact with him. You have contact with him, I'm putting you in jail. And that was the level that I needed to get free. Okay. So it sounds like, you know, and that's something that I think that I've seen before with domestic violence. You typically see, well, sometimes the person who is the victim in the situation, when the police are called, they get in trouble, right? Because the perpetrator can turn it around. Um, so while you ended up in that position, it seems like in that instance, it was that severeness of those consequences were what you needed to no longer be in the relationship. Absolutely. And I did spend three months in a homeless shelter trying to get back on my feet after mm -hmm. that. I pretty much started over from nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you were experiencing, um, you know, the abusive behaviors from your husband, did you have problems with anyone not believing you that he was abusive? My family didn't find that hard to believe at all. Now, of course, I didn't tell my family about all the sexual things that were going on in my relationship. Mm -hmm. But they were not surprised. They were sort of waiting for it. Okay. They were mm -hmm. sitting and waiting and praying that something would happen that would end our relationship because it wasn't healthy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But as far as not being believed, I didn't tell many people to not be believed, but the people that I did tell wanted to help. Mm -hmm. I, at the very end, I was in and out of psych hospitals. I was very suicidal and frightened and everything you feel when the person who's keeping you alive doesn't want you to be that way anymore. Mm -hmm. What do you mean he's keeping you? He was like keeping you alive. Can you elaborate on that? When I met him, I was extremely suicidal and self-injuring. It was at the beginning mm -hmm. of my journey into the psych world. And I felt like he was my reason for being and he was what was keeping me alive. And without mm -hmm. him, I couldn't imagine existing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is the only reason probably that I allowed all that to go on. And I did find that many of the people that are in alternate lifestyles are women who have been abused. Mm -hmm. And even when they think they're doing this because they're enlightened and, you know, oh, I am so much capable of this more than other people, it's really often from a broken place. And for me, it was definitely from a broken place. You said that... Typically, partners, women in that lifestyle are not actually free willing. It sounds like some sort of power or control that yeah. their spouse exerts on them. Keeps Often they exert upon themselves. I mean, they don't necessarily see themselves as victims. I didn't see myself as a victim at that time. Yeah. But you're reenacting what's familiar to you. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that it's healthy or it's good or even that it makes you happy. Just that it's familiar. We all want to be somewhere that feels comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's an evil, it's an evil, you know, almost. And no. you're like, I've, I've dealt with this before. I can do this. Yeah. yeah. And this is what I know. This is what feels comfortable. Being yeah. in a normal bonded relationship was weird and uncomfortable and you wanted to be, I wanted to be more enmeshed than that. I wanted to have him and me be a one thing and that would be my everything and ultimate. Mm -hmm. Because as a child, I didn't have that love that I needed. I was still looking for it. 
And because of the childhood, that's what I equated it with love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would you say that you had that kind of relationship, like a mesh relationship with your father growing up? Yes. Okay. okay. I did. And my mother, especially after the divorce, her main focus seemed to be on keeping me from growing up to be like my father. Mm-hmm. So in, a lot of her energy was focused on don't be this, don't be that, don't be the other thing. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that changed was because she met my stepfather and we moved in with him. He promised me that he was going to get her to stop being so hard on me. Mm-hmm. And he did. Unfortunately, she sort of lost interest in me at that point. Mm-hmm. But I really did not have any parent figure that was stable and loving and teaching me how to have a healthy relationship. I had to learn it from scratch as an adult. Yeah, and that's yeah. a very familiar thing for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. not having that mirrored growing up and that social learning you having to you know see for yourself which is not you know always ends in being with the best people nope mm-hmm. and really I think it was relationships that changed me and allowed me to heal the relationship with my therapist who I was with for 14 years mm-hmm. I'd been in therapy before that that was all putting out fires but with her we actually got deeper and found out what was going on. And again, this support group that I was in was developing friendships and, you know, daring to share a little tiny piece. And people didn't reject me the way I thought that they would. They actually related to me. And it was not completely foreign or evil or hurtful to them. Mm-hmm. So when I was looking at starting my healing, relationships were really important to that. And I had to learn the different levels that you have a relationship. You have your casual relationships up to your intimate relationship and each stage in between requires different skills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time trying to put myself into rela- into positions where I would develop the earlier levels of friendships because mm-hmm. I knew how to do completely enmeshed and I knew how to do casual. I'm never going to see you again, but everything in between was this frightening, overwhelming grayness. Yeah. Yeah. Of having boundaries, but also having intimate relationships. Right. Mm-hmm. When, you know, and that's something that ideally, right, kids learn as they kind of grow up, become adolescents. But when you're in fight or flight your entire life. Right. You don't, yeah. it doesn't get through. Mm-hmm. I know for me, I dissociated a lot, which mm-hmm. is sort of separating yourself from the situation. People see it as floating above the ceiling. That's not necessarily the way it comes out, but it is separating you from the world around you. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of that. So I wasn't aware during a lot of relationships mm-hmm. when I was earlier that might have been healthy otherwise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in your work, you know, with others, I know we talked a little bit about workshops. What kind of work do you do in those and, you know, helping guide others through their healing process and healing journey? Well, the workshops deal on specific skills on each workshop. For example, one of them is, a resource that I actually have available for free people is called a coping box. And it's two small posters you can fill out with the things that you can do when you're upset or scared or depressed or whatever overwhelm you have. And then a sheet about two pages long of just examples of things you can put in there. It includes all of the senses. So you might have firecrackers in there if you need a loud noise to bring you back down or a soothing piece of caramel if you just need to be present and feel what's going around you. And then also some things besides the senses about relationships, 
people you feel safe that you can call that you've talked to beforehand and said, listen, if I'm having a hard time, can I call you? And I don't want to talk about what's going on necessarily. I just need a human being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then activities that you can do that ground yourself, mindfulness, essentially. Although people hear that word, they don't always appreciate how helpful it can be because it just becomes mm-hmm. a buzzword. Yes, definitely. Okay, so it sounds like you work with them to create those coping skills. Um, and what else do y'all kind of do through these workshops? Is it like one day or like over weeks? Uh, it's a five to six week period program. Each one is related to a different skill and then we sort of bring it all together. And mm-hmm. re- developing relationships within the group is really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because again, I don't think it's possible to heal without having relationships and having other people to learn to trust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It kind of sounds too like it, works as a skills group slash support group absolutely Mm -hmm. have you yourself you know found healing from being able to pass along that knowledge and help others absolutely when I was broken it made me very angry when people would say well you know I got better now I can help other people I just figured why couldn't we just not have broken people to begin with Mm -hmm. and it took a long time to get past that this is ridiculous and I don't want to help other people because I don't want to justify what happened to me. And mm-hmm. as I got healthy, I was like, wow, I really do. I see these people. I have such compassion for them. And I really want to share how I got here. Because mm-hmm. you're so much better than they are. I want everybody to get to be here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So getting to a place where, you know, you're finally healed and able to see, okay, now I can, you know, again, not be in that fight, fight, freeze, Vaughn, and look outside and be able to say, okay, my fires have died down. Let me go help someone else. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing, you know, about your book, about your experience. Um, We like to do a question for each of our guests at the end of our podcast, the same one. And we ask them, you know, do you mind sharing a message to survivors out there? Absolutely. My message to survivors is that this is possible. You can be happy and you can be whole. And it's surprising how much less scary it is than it feels like when you start. Like once you start doing it, there's scary moments, but it's so freeing. And to be at a point for me where I don't want to kill myself and I don't want to hurt myself, I never thought I could get there. And for people that are still there, doesn't matter how old you are, how many things that happen to you, life can be better. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to give you this opportunity. So I want you to tell people where they can find your book, where they can find you and those resources you mentioned. Um, Are there like certain websites, social medias? Yes, I have a website. It's winningovershame.com. And it's all one word, the way you would expect it to be spelled. And it has on it uh, a case of the book, which will get you the coping box information, which there's no charge for. And there's a lot of good information in the blog about stories of when I was younger and how I got better. And as it continues, you know, shame doesn't just leave you one day and you're old and happy. So the blog really covers what's going on in my life now and how I'm handling it now. 
The book is also available on store.moneyoverschian.com if you want a paperback and I can autograph it for you. It's also available on Amazon and the ebook is available anywhere people get their ebooks. Again, that's Winning Over Shame, Overcoming Sexual, Emotional, and Psychological Abuse. Perfect. Um, any other social medias or anything you want to plug? I do have a handle on LinkedIn. I have a fairly nice following there. It's Debbie Adams. And then again, Winning Over Shame. Mm-hmm. And I have some Facebook presence. There is a Facebook group set up there. I haven't been focusing on Facebook lately, but it's definitely there for people who are interested that don't use other platforms. Mm-hmm. I would have anybody reach out to me who wanted to. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. And for anyone listening, I'm going to include those below in the description box so you guys can have those links and that information. Um, Thank you. Thank you again for coming on. This was great. And I appreciate you being willing to, you know, share your story and also, you know, use what you've learned to help others. We um, love seeing, you know, survivors thrive. Right. And yeah, winning, literally winning, winning over shame. Um, So this is, you know, awesome for us to see someone so much more towards the end of their healing journey. And Again, just thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, yeah, I look forward to hearing from people from yeah. your podcast who would like to get some help. Yes. Uh, thanks to all of our listeners, um, those who tune in to our podcast, and we will see you on the next one. Bye.